that old book. We're trying to keep that uh, running. This is not my lemonade, so I don't think I'll drink that. <laughs> but I almost did. And, um, and we are in Revelation chapter 12. And I just want to recap where I believe is going on. Right, we've made it through chapter 11, the first six uh, judgments, and we've seen how that all unfolds. We're coming to the end of the seven-year period. I've told you that I believe the church is raptured. Uh, that means taken to heaven. And then the seven-year period begins, the great tribulation, where the Lord deals with Israel, bringing the Jewish people back to him through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The three and a half year point is where the Antichrist commits the abomination of desolation talked about in the book of Daniel. He then persecutes Israel to great lengths. And uh, as we end chapter 11, uh, we go into chapter 12. And we looked at how this is an overview. God is uh, letting John take us back to the spiritual aspect of it. We saw the physical aspect of it. We saw the plagues, and we saw the, the famines, and we saw the earthquakes. But chapter 12 tells us why this is happening from a spiritual standpoint. And we looked last week that there are three main characters in chapter 12. First, the woman, then the child, and the fiery dragon. And I believe that the woman is Israel. And we looked, if you have those notes, from last week at all of the places in the Old Testament where Israel is talked about as a woman, a mother. You can see those if you would like those notes. And so we looked at that and we looked at the child, that the child is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we looked through all of the verses in the Old Testament and, and the lineages about who he was and what he was going to do. And then we look at the dragon. The dragon, the Bible tells us, is Satan. And this is very important because this view, the view that we have taught, the view that most of you understand, is no longer the view that most people have. We have watched the church, for some reason, have a great problem with Israel. But I believe you cannot focus and worship God truly if you start to wipe away all the promises that God has made to Israel. The Old Testament is full of them. Uh, the New Testament, we know that there are many promises fulfilled in Christ, but yet there are many promises to Israel about restoring the kingdom, about restoring Jerusalem that have not been fulfilled. And so uh, just to you to know that you need to be on guard because there is a, a new way of thinking about Israel and a new way of thinking about the Jewish people, and I believe it's wrong. I believe that God promises to bless those who bless Israel. I, we talked last week about how Satan hates the Jewish people. He hates Christ. And uh, we looked at all of the examples of that. But when we look at the dragon tonight, I want to just go over this very quickly. All right, very quickly, and then we're going to look at a ton of verses uh, to show what we are looking at here. So in verses 1 through 6, it gives us this overview of how Satan has hated Israel because he hates God and he hates the fact that Jesus was going to come into the world. And so when we look at verses 1 through 6, it's an overview. We looked at how the woman and the description is, is found in, in Genesis. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. 
a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And so we see how Satan has always persecuted the Jewish people. We looked about how in the days of Moses that he commanded them to murder the children. We looked at Herod, how he commanded the children born to be murdered. And we walked through this. And so what we see here is caught up, this idea that Jesus was caught up in the book of Acts. We looked at that after the crucifixion, after the resurrection. And then when we get to verse 6, we see that this three and a half year period where the Jewish people will be protected in the great tribulation, that second half of the tribulation. And I want you to flip over two pages with me because I want to go on and just very quickly look at this overview of the chapter. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, and the serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceiveth the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of the brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you will dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. I believe that this is that midpoint in the tribulation when Satan attacks and tries to rebel against God once more. His access is then caught up from heaven. The Bible tells us that he is accusing you and I before the throne of heaven. That's why I believe that during the second half of the tribulation period, persecution gets so great because Satan does not have access to accuse you anymore. He is here. And he knows that his time is short. And so that three and a half year period of judgment like the world has never known is because of what Satan will be doing. And if you have your Bibles, these are, verses are not in there. When chapter 12 continues, and we're not going to read it, it says all of it. It says, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. And so we see it come full circle. He has always persecuted the Jewish people. But once he realizes, for whatever reason, some people believe it's when the rapture happens, uh, that that is when Satan feels like he can attack. We don't know that for sure. We're going to look at that in the coming weeks. But for whatever reason, there is a rebellion again 
Now, some people believe that this rebellion is talking about when Satan fell originally. I disagree with that. Because if you read there, it tells us that he no longer has access. But yet we know that as of what we read in other places in the New Testament, that he is accusing the brethren. So wherever you fall on that spectrum, we just want to be reminded that this chapter was written for those people who are going to be living in the Great Tribulation, those who are coming to faith in Christ, and they're looking around saying, why is this happening? Why are millions of people dying? Why are plagues and earthquakes, all of this going on? Why is this happening? And God gives us this word of encouragement that Satan has always been at work, but he is not in control. That he has authority, that he has power, but that God will protect his own. And I think that's very encouraging because with all of this going on, it's easy to give up. It's easy to want to quit. It's easy to question why God allows things to happen. But so I believe chapter 12 and 13, 14 and 15 are just this reminder to the people who are living that God has not abandoned them, that God has a purpose for them. And you say, Jake, why is that? Well, if you've ever read the Old Testament, every time God judged Israel, they thought that he abandoned them. You can read through the Psalms. You can read through multiple books in the Old Testament when they were going through judgment or when they were in captivity. And it usually starts like something like this. God, why have you forgotten us? And God would remind them, I haven't forgotten you. I know you. I love you. I have a purpose and a plan for you. But yet, I believe that is the same thing that is going on here. And so when we come to the dragon... We're going to look at just what the Bible says in different places about the dragon. And so questions before we just jump in and, and let the scripture lead us and guide us and direct us through the power of the spirit. All right. Psalm 91 verses 13 and 14 talks to us about someone that will be destroyed, someone that will be trampled on. Psalm 91, verse 13, the Bible says, You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent, you shall trample under foot. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high, because he has known my name. The fact that Satan is called in the New Testament, uh, one like a raging or roaring Lion, seeking whom he may devour. In Genesis chapter 3, he is referred to as the animal that is more cunning and crafting than any other, the serpent. And so who do you think is being talked about in Psalm 91? Jesus. That Jesus will trample. He will destroy who? Satan. And we see that in the Revelation chapter 20 at the end of the millennial reign, Satan being destroyed. And so never forget that. When you look at what is going on in the world, when you read, or especially when someone calls himself a Satan worshiper, they are following a loser, a defeated foe. And that we have the promise that Jesus will be victorious. Now we've read the Gospels. We've seen what happened on Calvary. We know that Satan has been defeated, but yet he is still at work. 
And so that final judgment of Satan will happen when he is thrown into what? The lake of fire. And so don't miss that tonight because never give credit to Satan as being on the same level of God. Satan was a created being who chose to rebel and he is not God. He cannot be all places at all times. He's not all powerful. He's not all knowing. There's only one who creates life, gives life. There's only one who sits on the throne of heaven, and that is the Lord. All right? Questions, thoughts? All right. Well, in Exodus chapter 28, we see this description about the king of Tyre. And uh, up until the last 20 years, almost all Bible scholars believe that this was a reference to the fall of Satan. Now, over the last 20 years, as I told you, other one uh, seems like everyone's brain has fallen out, but it is what it is. But listen to how it describes it and why I believe it is a reference to the fall of Satan. In Ezekiel chapter 28, starting in verse 12, a lot of scripture tonight because we need to hear what God's word says. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, the barrel, onyx and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes were prepared for you on the day you were created. You were anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the days you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within. And you sinned, therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub. From the midst of the fiery stones, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they may gaze upon you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitudes of your iniquity. By the iniquity of your trading, therefore I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you. And I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the people are astonished at you. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever. So could this be describing an earthly king and the fall of Satan? Yes. But I do believe it is a picture here of why he fell, what it was like. And you say, well, what about all the jewels? Does he look like a, uh, a trophy wife? No, I believe it is just describing the beauty of who he was that we can comprehend in our mind, right? A picture that we can put together to understand the significance of who he was, what God had created him to do, and what the fall was like, and what happened in this situation. And so we need to recognize that, that Satan is a fallen angel, someone who rebelled and wanted to be God, to be above God, 
And because of that, that iniquity, that violence, that struggle has been brought into the human race through the fall in the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned against God. And so thoughts, questions. No, I don't think it does. I think it just teaches that in the sense that um, when you look at that word, there's a lot of time uh, and shall be no more forever. It can be used in a capacity. So, for instance, that you will not be able to do something forever. You will have the same freedom as forever. You will have the same access as forever. So I think that's probably a better understanding. Just because if you start to teach that Satan is going to be annihilated, that opens up the door for people then to start saying, well, I don't believe there is an eternal punishment for the lost. I believe in annihilism for them as well. And that's a scary thought because that's not that's not what the Bible teaches. Huh? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So you have to think about that just like no more access, no more opportunity, right? No more as it said in Revelation, no more opportunity to accuse the brethren. And so his ability to deceive the nations is going to be over. And so that is a better reading of that in, in the sense that he can just disappear. So, but thank you. That's a wonderful question. All right. Well, Daniel chapter 7, because we want to see that this is an instance that is talked about throughout the word of God. And we need to know this to be prepared, to be on guard. In Daniel chapter 7, it says, uh, if someone wants to read that, that would be a big help to me, as long as you promise to read loud. Daniel chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. After this, I have night visions. Thank you. <laughs> and behold, poor beast, dreadful terror. Exceedingly strong, and had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there were there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man. Yes, and so if you read Daniel chapter 7, Daniel is giving these visions of four beasts. And uh, as you go through this vision, we know that it talks about things like what is going to go on in Daniel's day, uh, what is going to go on through history of the Jewish nation. Uh, the four uh, beasts can represent different empires. If you have uh, the MacArthur Study Bible or the uh, Baptist Study Bible, you will see that note in there. And so it's really talking about that Satan and this final kingdom that he is trying to set up when he revolts the whole world against God. And we've talked about that, that since God broke up the nations at uh, the Tower of Babel and scattered us based on our languages, that mankind has been divided. It's been different kingdoms. It's been different goals. Um, but yet at the end of times, when the world revolts against the Lord, and we read in chapters 18 and 19, uh, that the whole world comes against the people of God, right? That when the Lord comes back, he destroys the enemies of this world. And so he's talking about Satan. He's talking about this last kingdom. 
and what it means. And it's important because it says it's not like the first three, right? It's not like the Roman Empire. It's not like the uh, Persian Empire. It's not like anything that the world has ever known. It is an empire of evil led by an evil one who is going to be in rebellion. That word for pompous words is really blasphemy against God. That I'm the focus, that I'm the one that should be worshipped. And remember what happens in the tribulation period, right? That he breaks the truth with Israel, saying who should be worshipped? Himself. Pompous words against the Lord. And so even back in the book of Daniel, God is giving these visions, giving these understandings of what's going to happen. The wickedness that the world is going to experience experience because the rest of this chapter if you jump down to verses 15 through 22 it gives us even more it gives us even more description of what's going to happen and we won't read all of these but in verse 16 it says what to make known to me the interpretation of these things Daniel's thinking what in the world is going on I don't understand all of this but if you look down in verse 19 then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured, broke in pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. And the ten horns were on its head and the other horn which came up before which the three fell, namely the horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words whose appearance was greater than his fellows. And that's a, a description, but look at what he's doing. I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the ancient of days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. I personally believe that is what happens in Revelation chapter 19. If you want to flip there, you can. Revelation chapter 19, we see that it starts out with heaven exalts, exalted over Babylon. In chapter 11, in chapter 19, verse 11, Christ comes on a white horse. Chapter 17, the, the verse 17, the beast and his armies are defeated. Right? The, the, the people of God have been persecuted. They have been chased. God has protected them, but yet there has been terrible things done. And so then we see the Ancient of Days, who is Jesus Christ, the one who has always existed. He's, he was never created. The Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. And we see there that he destroys this rebellion. He destroys this wicked wicked rebellion. And I think it's important there because it goes on and says, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. I do not believe in a figurative millennial reign. I believe in a thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. I believe that that is something that happens. I believe then that Satan is released for a short period of time. He is then destroyed and then the great white throne judgment. I believe that is the only way that you can fulfill all of the Old Testament promises to the nation of Israel, to the promises that he made, is to have that earthly kingdom that then transpires into, in 
an eternal kingdom. And so I don't believe it just because it's in Revelation 20. I believe because it's faithful to the promises that God made throughout the Old Testament. And so when you read Daniel chapter 7 here, I believe it is fitting because it talks about the war. It talks about the saints. It talks about the fact that he was uh, waging a war that was uh, winning at the time until. And don't miss that word until. It doesn't mean that it evolves. It don't mean that they begin to turn the ship. No, it gives the idea that things were hopeless until an event happened. And what is that event? When the Lord Jesus Christ steps out, comes back to this earth, and destroys his enemies. You say, well, Jake, how would Daniel know this is going to happen? Because the vision came from the Lord. How did Isaiah know all of the things about Jesus? Because it came from the Lord. And, and you need to read the word of God that way. Some things you might not understand and some things you might not be able to explain. Because friends, none of us are going to agree on everything. But when you read God's word, there are so many prophecies, so many situations that have come to fulfillment or will come to fulfillment that you can read God's word confidently. Knowing that it is truth, that it is inerrant, that it is infallible. That means without error, that it's God breathed and that God is in control. And when I started this book of Revelation teaching this, I thought, I don't want to do this. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to happen. We'll just buy everyone a set from David Jeremiah, send it to them. They can watch it. But at the very same time we were getting ready to start the book of Revelation, I was preaching to the minor prophets. And I thought, it doesn't have any connection at all. It doesn't really matter. But as I began to read the minor prophets and all of these prophecies and all of these promises, and then I began to read the book of Revelation, and I thought, it has helped me so much to be reminded that God is faithful. Now you say, Jake, I don't have that struggle. Okay, you're a super Christian. Well, good for you. But I can go through situations where I feel like, God, I think you've just left me here. God, I'm struggling. I don't see how the wicked seem to prevail. Right? I don't understand why certain things happen. And I can be very much in that, in that category. But when I read about God's faithfulness to the Jewish people who were a mess, who failed him, who, who broke the covenant, who, who did all of these things, but yet God is faithful. It helped me in two ways. One, it helped me in knowing that when God really does save you, he doesn't let you go. You say, Jay, did you ever question that? No, not at all. But I don't know about you, but I can do some things in my life from time to time where the Satan can deal with me like, do you really think that that's something that God would let you do? I'm not blaming my sin on him, that's for sure. But I can do things, I can think things, I can sin and be like, what in the world? God, how could you love someone like me? And two, it helps me to be reminded of not just God's love for me, but the fact that he is going to accomplish things. He's going to use me. He's going to use you. He is going to use this nation to do things that has failed him on every way. But he's faithful. And tonight, whether it's in your marriage, whether it's in your finances, whether it's in your confidence to witness to lost people, you need to trust him. When God made a promise, he keeps it. 
He is incapable of being unfaithful. People will fail you. Pastors will fail you. Deacons will fail you. Churches will fail you. Sunday school teachers will fail you. But God is faithful. And that is just, I think, an encouraging thing that has happened as I have been studying through the book of Revelation is that the Lord is reminding me over and over and over again to trust him. Trust him when it doesn't make sense. Trust him when I don't understand why. Trust him when I don't know how. Trust him. If God has every detail worked out like he does in the book of Daniel, when he talks about it and shows us in the book of Revelation, what I'm going through is pretty small. We're talking about 144,000 witnesses. We're talking about two witnesses who couldn't be killed. We're talking about a nation that was unfaithful and, and unwilling, and he just kept loving them and working through them. And so it just gives us confidence in him. And I hope that as you look through the book of Revelation, and, and what you're saying is, Jake, I leave here more confused than when I got here sometimes. I understand. I leave here more confused sometimes than when I got here. It is to never miss that fact that wherever you've been, whatever you've done, whatever you've struggled with, however you failed him, tonight if you know him and you belong to him, you are his. You're not, he is not done with you if he is still left breath in you. No matter how you failed him, how you disappointed him, to remember that he has a purpose for your life. So, questions? I got on a tangent there about how good God is. I think it should happen more often in church, but that's okay. Well, I want you to see in chapter 8, because it goes on and talks about this more. And if somebody would read verses 22 and 23, we'll stop right there. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up against its place, four kingdoms shall rise out of the nation, but not with its power. And in the latter time of the king, their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall rise having fierce features who understand sinister schemes. Now, I don't want you to miss that, all right? In verse 22, you could apply this to many of the earthly kingdoms of this world. You can, you can look at things that have happened in history, whether it's Egypt, whether it's uh, uh, Alexander the Great, and all of these things. But I don't want you to miss this. Verse 23, it says, In the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, God only lets them go so far. The wicked seem to win, but they don't. A king shall have a rise, having fierce feature, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He, destroy, he shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people through his cunning. Now don't miss this. He shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. And he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. But he shall be broken without human means. 
What does that mean? That means divine intervention. The Antichrist is not destroyed. Satan is not destroyed by anything that you and I will do. It is a heavenly sent destruction. And the visions of the evening and morning which was told is true. Therefore seal up the vision. For it refers to many days in the future. Now some people would say, well this was an earthly kingdom that was destroyed. But when you think about the Romans, there wasn't a spiritual supernatural event that brought them to an end. It, you know, it just ended. You say, well what about Persia or what about all these other ones. Well, yeah, the Lord had a hand in it. But what this reads here, and don't miss this. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. In chapter 8, verse 25. Now, who is the prince of princes? We'll go back to verse 11. You will see, I believe, that it is his blasphemy of trying to be like Christ, to be worshipped, to be the center of attention. But he shall be broken without human means. How is this kingdom and king defeated? I think you jump to Revelation chapter 19. And you see the Lord of Lords, King of Kings coming on a white horse. They say, Jake, why are we spending so much time on this? Because I want you to see that this is not just something that John makes up in chapter 12. This is something that Daniel saw in chapter 7. It is a vision that was given in Psalm 91. It is a vision given in Ezekiel. And there are many more. But for the sake of time tonight, we can't look at all of them. But you can. You can go home and study all of these. Because what we need to then think is, if God's going to take care of this, what does that mean for me today? Well, in 1 John, I want you to see some of these warnings that are given to us. 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. Now, this one verse is why you will have whole denominations that teach, if you will live godly long enough, you can achieve what is perfection on earth. But that is not what it's talking about here. All right. It is telling us that the nature, the sinless nature of God is imputed to us when you're saved. And what it's teaching us that a child of God cannot willfully and habitually sin without the spirit of God dealing with them. What that means is you cannot be a child of God. Live however you want, and God not deal with you. You say, well, my sin doesn't bother me. I know what it says. There's not a problem in my life. I don't have conviction. I don't have... Then one of two things is happening. You are not a child of God. Or two, you fit the category of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 
where you have backslidden so far that God is going to take you home. Mm. You say, Jake, I don't like that. I don't know what else to tell you. That's the only two examples. Because the Bible clearly teaches us in other places that if you say you have no sin, the truth of God is what? Not in you. And so for those denominations that say you can live a perfect life after you're saved, my Bible says they don't have the truth of God in them. Why? Because we sin. But as a Christian, our sin should never be okay when the Spirit of God lives within us. You see, when you got saved, something happened to you. It's a supernatural event. The very Spirit of God came to live within you, seals you, convicts you, leads you, guides you, all of those wonderful things. But friends, never forget that a child of God might run for a season. You might be able to harden your heart for a time. But if you're really God's, he loves you too much to let you go. That's why I believe in the security of the believer. I was raised generally Baptist. You can get in the boat, you can get out of the boat, you can get in the boat, you can get out of the boat, all right? And when I came to the Lord at about 20 years old, I struggled. I mean, I struggled a lot. Whether am I lost, am I saved? I, I remember being under conviction. I remember trusting Christ. I remember laying in my car in the spot tavern after a full night of wickedness and the Lord dealing with me like, this is not where I want you to be. And I'm telling you, if your kids tell you they can live in sin and it doesn't bother you, they're lying to you if they're a child of God. Now, sometimes it was a still small voice. And sometimes the pleasure of sin in those moments made it seem almost like it wasn't there. There was never a night that I laid my head on the pillow and did not know that I was running from the Lord. Not one night. You say, Jake, I'm telling you not one night. There was not one morning I didn't think, wake up thinking, I'm not going to do that again. But I did. And that's why, because when God comes to live within you, something changes about you. He makes you alive. He gives you a, a new heart, a new nature. And so what he says is that when he died on the cross, he did defeat the works of Satan. But yet Satan will still be working until that time comes to an end. And so how do we reconcile those two things? Well, one, that means that he can't work in you. That's when people say, do you believe a Christian can be demon-possessed? No, I don't. I believe once the Spirit's in you, he doesn't give it up. It's just what I believe. You can disagree with me and be wrong or right, that's fine. But this verse teaches us that we are born of God. Something changes. Questions, thoughts? You say he's sitting down, he's almost done. I am. You say, but the notes aren't almost done. I can't help it. Isaiah 14 takes us back again to the fall of Satan. You say, Jake, why, why did you put that here? Well, it's not in its rightful place. Well, I want you to see verse 13. I want you to see what Satan's problem was. How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you were cut down to the ground. You have weakened the nations. 
for you have said in your heart. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. I said this, I believe, Sunday night or maybe last week. But what you see, and this is not mine, I didn't come up with this, all right? You start by seeing Satan in heaven. You then see Satan thrown out of heaven, but still has access to accuse the brethren. That's what it says. I believe in the three and a half year period of the tribulation, he is thrown out of heaven for good. He has no access. He is here on this earth. That's why you see things progress that last half. There, I believe, in Revelation chapter 20, you see him thrown into the pit where he'll be chained for 1,000 years. But eventually, he will be thrown into the lowest <coughs> depths. That is the lake of fire. And so what we see here, though, is it started where? His heart. His heart. That's why we see the warning over and over and over again to guard your heart. Out of the mouth comes the overflow of the heart. Harden not your heart. Sin doesn't begin, I believe, in the mind. I don't believe it begins in your faculties. I believe sin and rebellion always starts in the heart. That's why it matters what you watch. That's why it matters what you listen to. That's why it matters who you are around. That's why it matters what you read. Because we know that it affects us. We know that that's why the Bible warns us about unforgiveness, about not letting the sun go down on your anger. Why? Because it affects the heart. It affects the heart because it breeds pride. And you say, Jake, how does unforgiveness breed pride? I'll tell you, because it makes you think you're right. You say, Jake, how does a fight with my wife affect my heart? It makes you think you're right. And what Satan thought, if you read verse 13, I will ascend into heaven. That doesn't mean that he was out of it and he went into it. That means that he was going to be in charge of it. He wanted the glory. He wanted to be worshipped. He wanted to be honored. He wanted to sit on the throne because it goes. It says, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I mean, look, the stars can reference um, those worshipers. It can mean other angels. It can mean many things. And so I don't want you to miss that because when it goes on, it says, I will sit on the mount of the congregation. It's about being praised. It's about everyone looking at me, worshiping me, being focused on me. When you go to a concert, they put them up on a stage. And people pay way too much money for nonsense to watch a person on a stage. If you've not seen some of these concerts from, from these new uh, people, I won't mention any names because some of you probably listen to them and like them and I don't need any more hate mail, all right? It's almost like worship. Yeah. It's almost like they worship these people on the stage. People are fainting and weeping. I've seen grown men on the internet weeping at a 25-year-old girl's concert. I'm just so happy. I wanted this so long. I just had to be a Swifty. I'm, I'm, you know, I just want to. 
But you know what? They don't have a heart for the things of God. There's no brokenness over sin. It's worship. You say, Jake, I disagree with you. You're wrong. I got, I got one to go right along with that. Oh, no. How about a grown man having a jersey with another man's name on it? Oh, that's going to get, that'll cost you. Send it on. We have to be very careful in how we spend our money. What has our affection? Because it becomes idol worship. Other questions, other thoughts. Alright. Well, that's where we're going to stop tonight. Next week we'll pick up as we've looked at how Satan has attacked the children of Israel. And we'll look at Exodus chapter 1, and Matthew chapter 2, and Luke chapter 4. I just really want to leave you with this bow of confidence. That whatever you are going through, whatever you struggle with, however many times you think you failed God, God is at work. I have uh, been blessed here the last few weeks to see people saved and people baptized and people join the church. And I got the privilege of talking to a young man this morning. Uh, not this morning. Um, yeah, this afternoon. And um, he's been under conviction. He's, he's been thinking about being saved. And, but when we were talking, he just wasn't there yet. He just wasn't quite ready. You know, he. He understands that there is sin and that he might struggle with sin, but friends, the Lord is at work. Because people don't just wake up and seek the Lord. It is the Lord that starts that work. It's the Lord that deals with the hearts of people. And I'm thankful for that. Because when you and I look around the world that we are in, it is sometimes hard to see what the Lord is doing. I'm so thankful I look around in this church and see marriages that four or five months ago I thought they weren't going to make it. Or people with struggles and battles and things that, that, that seemed hopeless. But God is involved. And so the greatest piece of advice I can give you tonight, if you are not right with Him, to make it right. You say, Jake, this is a Wednesday night crowd. We're here all the time. We suffer through your sermons and teachings. And we, you know you have to be saved to put up listening to you, Jake. Well, that might be the case. But I've done this long enough to know that just because you're here on a Wednesday night does not mean you're a Christian. And if you're here tonight and you are not a child of God, if you are not sure that you have repented of your sins and trusted Him as the Lord and Savior of your life, all this other stuff that we're talking about doesn't matter until you know Him. The Bible teaches us that Jesus died upon the cross, He was buried, and He rose again to save sinners. And that if you'll believe in your heart and confess with your mouth Jesus Christ is Lord, you shall be saved. You say, well, Jake, I know I'm saved, but what does that mean for me? I don't know. <clears throat> Whatever baggage you're carrying, you've got to believe that the Lord can take care of it. You have to believe the Lord can work in your prodigal children. You have to believe that the Lord can work in your marriage as it's falling apart. You have to believe that God can do and work and move. And then if you're here tonight, and I think this is the one that I hear the most from people, I just struggle with my failures. Friends, repent of them. Ask God to forgive you and live in that forgiveness. All you got to do is ask one time. If you ask a thousand times for the one sin you've already committed, you've asked 999 times what? Too many. Too many. And you 
have to believe that. Remember what God can do for you because look what he's done in the life of Israel. And trust him.